Hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated, friends. Would you please pray with me? Our Father and our God, as we now turn our attention to the preaching of your word, We ask that you would do what we cannot do, what none of us can do. 
We pray that you would incline our hearts to hear your word, that your spirit would come and speak through your word to your people. All glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, now and forever. Amen. He is perhaps the most infamous man in the history of the world. His cruelty, depravity, wrath are are all famously known. I'm sure you've heard of him. I'm thinking of Nero. Well, you've probably heard of Nero. What, What you may not have heard of is what happened after he lived. See, Nero dies in 68 AD and it leads to 69 AD, which is known as the year of the four emperors. The Roman Senate leaned on the right people in Nero's camp to persuade Nero that his ends and aims were actually contrary to the good of the Roman people. He was, though their emperor, a a rebel. And so they persuaded him to take his own life. The Senate then props up a man named Galba. And in January of 69 AD, the Praetorian Guard, think that the secret service of the Roman era, decides that Galba is actually against the good of the Roman Empire. Galba is a rebel. And so they kill him. And a man, Marcus Otho, takes over. And Otho is emperor all the way until April from January to April, until someone with a bigger army comes and decides, you know what, Otho, you're actually a rebel. You are against Rome. And so Otho takes his own life rather than subjecting his soldiers to defeat in a battle. And so Vitellus becomes emperor. Well, in December of that same year, Titus Flavius Vespasian, with a larger army, comes and says, Vitellus, no, you are a rebel against Rome. I'm going to restore Rome to what it should be. And so he becomes emperor. And unsurprisingly, the previous emperor is disposed and disposed of. It's what we do to rebels. We understand this. You kill rebels. If you think this is just an ancient thing, bring to your mind Tiananmen Square. What did the Nazis do to people who spoke out against them? What could happen to someone today for speaking against Putin in Russia? Unless you think this is not an issue of our own, I would remind you that treason is one of the very, very few crimes that is punishable by death in the United States. It's what we do to rebels. We kill them. And so today's passage flies in the face of what we normally encounter. Because what we'll see today is that man's rebellion is met by God's faithfulness. Man's rebellion is met by God's faithfulness. And we see this in two movements. First, verses 1 through 13, man's rebellion. And then in verses 14 through 24, God's faithfulness. So please join me in in looking at the first part of our text here as we examine man's rebellion. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We have here in in this passage a new character who enters the scene. We, We know the woman. We've read of God. We know of Adam. But here we meet the serpent. And there is, unsurprisingly, some debate as to who the serpent is. Almost everyone agrees that it is in some way Satan or representative of Satan. Some would suggest this is an envoy of Satan, someone speaking on behalf of Satan. Others say that this is Satan inhabiting a serpent. Uh, Think how Legion inhabited the pigs in the field. Or perhaps this is Satan who changed his form and actually became a serpent. His body actually becoming the body of a serpent. I I think either of the last two, this is Satan in a serpent, Satan became a serpent. Either way, I think either of those are a perfectly fine reading of this. I would say it is important that it is Satan when we see the curses that are laid out upon the serpent for us to understand that these are curses that are actually on Satan himself as well. So we have Satan... The great deceiver, engaging in a conversation with Eve. And it is a collection of half-truths, a discourse of half-truths. It's almost farcical, but the problem is, is there's no comedy to be detected here. The serpent begins with a disingenuous question. Did God say you couldn't eat anything here? And he, of course, knows the answer. And the woman replies with a response of half-truth. No, we can eat anything except for that tree. We can't even touch it, because if we do, we'll die. Almost as if the fruit itself was poisoned. That she thought that by touching the fruit, the poison would seep in through her pores and would physically kill her body. So Satan sees it in. He says, no, 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 no. You won't surely die. That, That tree's not poisoned. That's not why God told you not to eat of it. He told you not to eat of it because he knows that if if you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. And you get a half truth. They will know good and evil, but not like God knows good and evil. God knows good and evil because God knows all things possible, all things actual. Eve will know evil because she will have experienced it. She will have committed it. The problem with half truths is they are the most compelling whole lies. Half-truths are the most compelling whole lies, and so Eve is deceived. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that is, it was not poisonous, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Friends, this is exactly how our culture talks about sin. Exactly how our culture talks about sin. How could you possibly commit to a single person for the rest of your life if you haven't been with multiple partners previous to that? I mean, you can't really know if you prefer that person if they really make you happy unless you experience something else, right? Purported wisdom. How could you be married to someone unless you've been physically intimate with them beforehand? You couldn't possibly marry them first. Well, you might as well live together for a while too so you know that that's going to work out, right? Do that before... Oh, you you don't drink? You don't want to be drunk? How do you know? Have you ever been drunk before? You might like it better than sobriety. You should try it. Every time purporting that there's wisdom to be gained, sin 
and gain wisdom, sin and gain experience. But the problem is sin never gives us wisdom. It only gives us shame. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is what shame does, friends. It isolates. First, from each other, sowing fig leaves. Then, from God, literally running away from him. Literally running away from him. So, friends, when you have shame... When you have sinned, how do you isolate? What is it that you do? Do you just stay away from people? I'm not gonna go to that thing because they might ask me an uncomfortable question. Do you not let anyone get close enough to you relationally that you don't have anyone who would ever ask you those questions? Maybe you, you go and you're present, but you're only present as an entertainer. To, to joke and laugh and be merry and jolly. And there is a good place for that, friends. But if that is the sum total of your relationships, you have isolated yourself. Or maybe you just lie. Because it's easier to say when you asked, how are you? Ah, oh, fine. Than to say, I feel like a failure. I'm not a good spouse. I'm not a good parent. I don't feel like a good employee. I think that consistently across my life, my moral failings are jeopardizing my identity of who I am. It's a lot easier to say, oh, fine, it's kind of a tough week. How do you isolate, friends? I'm gonna ask you here, don't. I'm not gonna ask you that just for the sake of the health of our church, though it will contribute to that. But I'm gonna ask you not to isolate because what we see here is that when Adam and Eve isolate themselves, God actually seeks after them as it were, asking them to come out. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He that is God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is our next step in avoiding our shame. We isolate when we can't isolate any further. When someone actually pursues us to the point that we are engaged, we have two options. We can confess. Adam could have said, I did, I ate of the tree. Forgive me. But he didn't. He deflected. He said, I ate of the tree, sure, but it was that woman, that woman that you gave me, you take it up with her. You gave her to me and she did this. So that's really between you two. And then God asked the woman, what have you done? And did she say, I believe this crazy serpent, I didn't believe your truth, understand your truth. No, 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 that's not what she said at all. She said, the serpent deceived me. Again, it's not my fault. It's this creature that's in the garden. The serpent deceived me. Have you ever felt this way, friends? 
God, I wouldn't be so angry if I just had a better spouse and better kids. If my life circumstance was better, I wouldn't be anxious if I had a better job, then I'd have all the money I wanted. I wouldn't struggle with being drunk all the time if you just made me happier, God. Why don't you give me these things that I want? Or in serious, genuine times of suffering, crying out in anguish and anger towards God. We blame the circumstances and the situations rather than ourselves. That is man's rebellion, friends. And so we now move to look at God's faithfulness, which surprisingly comes in the form of a curse. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, some people take this passage to be that prior to this incident, snakes had legs. Maybe they looked like lizards, maybe like reptilian centipedes. I've even heard that they were dragons. Uh, I'm going to argue that snakes never had legs. I think snakes always were snakes. I think the point here is not that the legs are being removed. It's that significance is being added to the mode with which the snake was traveling in. Now, as it slithers on, the be- on its belly on the ground, it is shameful. Now, as it eats the dust of the ground, it eats the dust in judgment. I'm saying that because what we see with the woman and the man is what they would have already done. Women would have borne children in the garden. Men would have tilled in the garden. And so those things don't change but in a way they are broken. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. See, the woman, who is about to be named Eve, will still bear God's image in that she will bring life into this world. The man will still bear God's image in that he will work and provide and cultivate. But it is not as it once was, friend. The image bearing is now steeped inextricably in suffering. God does not remove his image from us, but the expression of our image bearing bears suffering. And yet, Oddly, as a response to that, Adam names his wife. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. What a strange response, right? He, God tells the woman, you are going to suffer when you bear children. And he tells the man, you're going to suffer all of your life working. It's going to be hard 
And in fact, it's going to sap the life out of you so much so that you will return to the dust that you work. And then he says, all right, I'm gonna name my wife now, mother of all living. And it, it doesn't make any sense unless Adam believed God when he pronounced judgment on the serpent in the verse that we skipped over, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The fancy theological word for this is the proto-evangelion. It's the, the first hint of the gospel to come. And as Charles Spurgeon notes, it was made to all of the human race as a curse upon our enemy. What a beautiful first declaration of the gospel made by God himself. The image here is that the snake would strike up at the heel of the man and the heel of the man would be pierced and yet as it comes down, crush the head of the serpent. So the man's foot would be bruised, damaged, pierced. The serpent's head would be bruised, crushed, but they are not the same type of bruised, friends. And Adam believes this. Adam believes God in this declaration, so he names his wife the mother of all living because there's hope. Even in God's curse, there is hope. They retain their image-bearing nature. The enemy himself is cursed, and then here, verse 21, they have a foretaste. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Some have called this the first sacrifice, I don't know if I'm comfortable saying that, but what I am comfortable saying, it is almost certainly, or it is certainly the first shedding of blood. God with his own hands sheds blood to cover Adam and Eve because their covering was not sufficient. They sowed fig leaves and the fig leaves weren't enough, so they ran away. And running away wasn't enough, they have to leave. And the clothing they have is insufficient, so God clothes them. But they have to go. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Man must leave. The fruit of the tree of eternal life must be withheld from the man. God promised that they would die if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate of it. So now they must die. They cannot have this fruit, but also they must die because they must be resurrected, because sin has now entered their bones. It is within them. So their bodies must pass away so they can be glorified. It is amazing, this, this tree that is mentioned here, it paints this picture, the story of Genesis 3, of a story of two trees, really. And it's a story that we see replicating itself all throughout Scripture. There's the way of the righteous and the way of the unrighteous. The way of the righteous and the way of the unrighteous. And apparently, from everything we can see in the text, Adam and Eve had full access to this tree of eternal life for as long as they were in the garden. Yet they never ate of it. They said in, they, 
instead chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to rebel against God. And so now Adam has been replaced. As he's kicked out, there's now a cherubim guarding the entrance. And that word guard was used back in chapter two when Adam was told to keep the garden. It's the same word there, guard. Which means that if this cherubim is now keeping and guarding the garden, keeping Adam out, and Adam was supposed to do the same thing, then he was supposed to be the one who bruised the head of the serpent. He was supposed to protect his wife, protect the garden, and crush the snake. But he failed. And so now he's out of Eden, and he can never get back. So we need a second Adam. We need the promised Messiah of Genesis 3.15. We need the snake crusher to come to shed his blood in a sacrifice, to once and for all defeat death so that we can say, death, where is your sting? We need Jesus Christ to come and do what Adam could not do because we are like Adam. You are like Adam. You too have failed. You know this to be true. It is why we rejoice so greatly in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this text? I'm gonna encourage us to do three things. First, when you sin, don't hide it. I'm not saying post it on social media. I'm saying have someone that you care about, that cares about you, who loves you deeply, that you can go to and confess your sin. And seriously and honestly address it. Second, sin is not a flippant little thing that we can brush off. Look at what sin has done, friends. From perfect communion, walking in the garden with God, to being expelled. So I'm going to encourage you to fight your sin. Realize that sin is not flippant and treat it as such. And third, praise our great God and Savior that our sins have been paid for at the cross, that he has redeemed us. Worship God for that. May we be a people who do not hide our sin, but who fight it fiercely and who always praise God for the great forgiveness that he has given to us. Would you pray with me, friends? Our Father and our God, we thank you that Jesus Christ came as the snake crusher to once and for all time make an end to sin and the reign of death. We pray that as his body here on earth, we would take sin seriously, that we would love our brothers and sisters who come to us confessing and repenting of their sin, that we would always and only point them toward the gospel and the forgiveness that you offer. We pray, Father, that we would be a people shaped by the realization that we have been forgiven of much. And so we would forgive unendingly. Would your spirit make this so? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.